0: Good evening, I'm Cornelius Wright, and welcome to Bring It On. We're a multiple award-winning show celebrating over 13 years as Indiana's only weekly community radio show committed to exploring the people, issues, and events affecting African Americans.
2: Good evening. I'm Roberta Radovich. In today's broadcast, you'll also hear about a new bicentennial exhibition, which opened on June 1st. The theme is Breaking the Color Barrier, Bloomington's Firsts, all in the next hour on Bring It On.
0: But first, since 1971, Middleway House has been providing services to people in crisis. Today, they provide supportive and empowering services for survivors of domestic abuse sexual violence, stalking, and human trafficking, such as emergency shelter, a 24-7 help and crisis line, on-scene advocacy, transitional and permanent housing solutions, legal advocacy, support groups, personal advocacy, child care and youth programs, as well as educational and prevention programs.
2: Middleway House serves six counties in southern Indiana and relies on a staff of 70 and a volunteer force of 300 plus to provide services. That's not a lot of staff, is it? <laughs> no, volunteers definitely outnumber us. <laughs> it is not necessary that an individual reside in the emergency so- shelter or the transitional housing program to access most of the services. Middle Way House provides e- equality of services and care to all survivors without, re- without regard to ethnicity, religion, national origin, age, gender, affectional, orientational, orientation, disability, or income.
0: We initially had a conversation with a couple of staff members from Middleway House to discuss the services they provide, along with the special programming that previously occurred in April, which is designated as Sexual Assault Awareness Month. Throughout the month, programs were offered to raise public awareness about sexual violence and to educate communities on how to prevent it.
2: The conversation was so intriguing that we had to invite them back for part two. So here again from Middleway House is, the direct, is director Deborah Morrow Moro, Moro, and community outreach coordinator Sarah Hunt. Thank you, Deborah and Sarah, for joining Welcome us. Welcome to Bring It On. Thank you. Thank you for having us back. So since we had you the first time in April, would you like to recap a little bit of some highlighted events that really brought um, some awareness and impact
3: from April's? Throughout the month of um, April, we hosted several events. So we had several workshops on consent and exploring what that looked like. We talk about consent a lot, but we know that in actual practice, it can be a little bit more of a gray area. Um, and so just kind of understanding what that looks like, how you can have conversations such as that. We also had a wonderful um, panel, a hashtag MeToo panel, where we invited several guests from lots of diverse communities to discuss their experiences, as well as kind of how we all foresee the MeToo movement shifting. Then we had another workshop called um, Your Friend Just Caused Harm, What Next? Because we know that many people experience sexual violence at the hands of someone they know. This myth of a stranger hiding in the bushes um, really has proven to be inaccurate. We know most people experience sexual violence at the hands of the people we know, which also means... That in many cases, we will know someone who has been accused of perpetrating violence. And how do we respond then? Because it's much harder for some reason. It's it's a strange response when we know that these things happen um, from people we know. But then when it's someone we know that caused harm, how do we move forward from there? Okay. And also looking into a little bit about the transformative justice movement, because n- Not everyone wants to move forward legally, and our system really isn't capable of prosecuting every case of sexual violence as well. There's not enough room. Mm -hmm.
0: Mm -hmm. That's an interesting point. Uh, We were kind of talking a little bit before the show. Let's say you're walking down the street, you're in a restaurant, just out in general, and you see something physical happening between a man and a woman. And, you know, obviously call 911 and, and get the authorities there, but something needs to be done then and there. What should a person do?
3: I think it's complicated because you could be putting the survivor as well as yourself in more danger if you just intervene. Even if it interrupts the violence in the moment when that survivor gets home they're most likely we know going to be blamed for drawing attention to the situation even though we know that that most likely is not the case and i'm sure deborah has many thoughts to flesh that out as well i can see her nodding.
4: i know that the most important thing is for the individual who is seeing that who's the bystander in the moment not to put themselves in danger that is first and foremost i know that some people feel like they want to jump in and they want to be the hero and they want to save the day but what's most important is not to put yourself in danger i think that if it looks like that person is in actual physical danger themselves the survivor victim in the situation i think definitely call for some immediate first response help but i also think that there are things that you could do to maybe detract without i mean if there's a group of people around you could start saying hey have you seen my dog or something to kind of detract from the situation that's going on to maybe Mm -hmm. make them pull away for just a second from that incident they're involved in Mm -hmm. where they are
2: noticing something else
4: might help diffuse the situation Mm
2: -hmm.
4: i think that can be valuable
2: Sarah, can you go back to the Me Too panel and you said something about that collective group that got together. We're thinking through how that Me Too um, momentum and movement is shifting. Would you like to talk a little bit more about that?
3: Well, I think that in a sense, even the founder of the movement, Tarana Burks, has said that some people are starting to say now, oh, this has gone on long enough. Like, all these people just keep talking about this issue, and it's been a relatively short time. And I think coming forward with stories is very supportive, but how do we move forward to perhaps lessening the number of Me Too's? Of course, we need to hold the space, but moving forward, how do we implement prevention strategies and and bystander intervention so that perhaps less people do need to come forward and say, me too. And that means that we have to unpack a host of things surrounding this. Oppression doesn't occur in a vacuum. So this type of violence is a form of oppression in many cases. But then there's also many layers that intertwine there. So an LGBTQ person that identifies along that spectrum faces a more host of barriers to coming forward and disclosing or a person of color, or a person of various immigration statuses who may not be documented or whose documentation is tied to the perpetrator of the abuse. Mm -hmm. So we have to start looking at all of these layers and the intersectionality of these issues Mm -hmm. in order to unpack sexual violence and domestic violence.
0: Education. Has there been any type of discussion regarding starting in the elementary schools with children um has there been any talk with Monroe County school system about implementing that in their curriculum and just as a whole where's that whole situation
2: and what does that look like
0: yes I mean Uh, from your perspective
4: our prevention program staff talk about that all of the time it's a lot of capacity problems for us. Um, I know MCCSC is doing some programming themselves on safe relationships in the elementary schools. We got a grant from the Community Foundation for our prevention program to hire somebody for programming for younger age children, like elementary school age children. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they work with some of the um, local organizations, boys and girls clubs and stuff like that. And so I know last year at Pride, they had a program for um, youth and their caretakers that was mm-hmm. well attended for from individuals who want to start teaching the kids at a young age about boundaries for themselves and yeah. how to recognize boundaries mm-hmm. and healthy relationships, which is huge. I mean, I feel like in my generation, that was not something we were taught. About, I was not taught about personal boundaries. You know, aunt so-and-so wants to kiss you. Go kiss your aunt. Go kiss your uncle. Go, you know. And now it's about teaching kids that they, ha- and us as adults recognizing kids have a right to say, no, I don't want to. You know, we should ask children, can I give you a hug? Can I give you a kiss? You know, and these, this is all about where, educating kids that they have boundaries even though they're children and you know I want to see our prevention programming expand so much because you know we can do like I always say we can do this crisis work and we can continue doing it and we want to do it as long as it's needed but the only way we can lessen this is if we do more in the prevention field
2: right
0: oh I do have one follow-up yeah children whose Parents, either way, are victims who are watching this abuse in the homes. Is there any type of resource for them?
4: Well, um, we have in our programming, if somebody is in our shelter or our transitional housing, we have a licensed daycare on site for these kids where um, all of the staff understand how trauma impacts children. And then we have an extensive youth program Um, that's housed in our transitional housing that also serves kids in our shelter, our transitional housing and aftercare for our residents, children, and they all understand the impact of trauma on children. Um, I wish we had more resources available because it is very damaging for kids to see abuse in the home. I mean, and a lot of times the parents, who's being abused is trying so hard to be okay and hold it all together that they often don't really realize until after the fact, the impact that it's had on the children.
2: Yeah. It just, it just seems so that one quantifiable way that the me too movement can kind of push the needle forward is with that starting with that, a a curriculum Mm -hmm. that is a national curriculum that hits the little kids. Uh we were talking just before the show Juno Diaz's sort of like reclamation of his um both potentially an alleged perpetrator status as well as his victim status and um the very very poignant article, very long, painful article that he wrote mm-hmm. about the legacy of childhood um um Um, sexual misconduct with people close to him, people who he knows, right? And spending your entire life trying to unravel that. Um, So what happens when we are in a society, in a culture, you can both be simultaneously a victim and a perpetrator. It seems like working with the children and building a curriculum in public spaces like public schools and um, public libraries and other safe places or places that are designated as safe places where children go to kind of get that message reinforced. Mm-hmm.
4: Middle White House has a great curriculum for the middle and high schools and there's not a time that they go into the schools that they don't have kids come and identify as somebody who's experienced abuse. Mm-hmm. And you know, we, we always have an on-scene advocate there who's specially skilled in working with them through that situation and helping them and provide them with information and resources, as many as what's available. And that's the thing. We need to put the resources towards the kids. Right,
2: because it, it does, it seems like it needs to be a multi-pronged approach. If your kids go to the YID, mca and there's an advocate in that sort of satellite safe space that somehow that gets accurately and usefully communicated back to the parent or the guardian uh, doctor, pediatric. I mean, I don't know. I'm I'm thinking off the top of my head. But how do you protect families, protect children, but move this needle forward? And,
0: and I want to follow up that question with this, because this was very disturbing to me, and I'm sure as well as everyone here. But the Michigan State deal, where you had children telling their mothers and their fathers they were being abused and ignored. Mm-hmm. is Does that happen often? How do we get away from that? Because I mean, to me, the parents should have went to jail, too, because, I mean, if, you, if your child was telling you this and you ignore it...
4: I, th- I think we have to... I mean, sadly, that is probably a lot more common than what we all know, but I think we have to look at The entire situation, what was preventing the parents from telling? You know, these are the things we have to address. Punishing the parent, you know, I guess that's a matter of personal opinion. But I want to know, what was it Mm -hmm. that was preventing the parents from telling? When you look at all of the types of cases where this has happened, I mean, in religious communities where this has happened, Mm -hmm. you know, parents protected. I mean, if it was a small town, they may not disclose because they're protecting their family status in the community. Mm -hmm. They don't want to be the one person who tells because, you know, abuse is often this great secret, you know, and if you're the one person who tells and nobody else comes forward, you're Mm -hmm. standing there alone. And that's a pretty scary place to be. So is that where the parents are stuck? Mm -hmm. Then that's where we need to Hope people feel empowered to be that one person standing alone telling your story and saying this is not okay well in
3: talking in advance too i think that's where prevention really is is all of us with you know from a young age on but letting people know in advance what they can do if something like this happens Mm. because we often don't know Or even just if a friend makes a very, you know, a comment that promotes rape culture, like objectifying a woman, or um, you know, victim blaming things about survivors of sexual assault, like what were they wearing, or maybe they've had too much to drink if they hadn't put themselves in that situation. But when we hear our friends or other people make these comments, if we speak up in that moment and say, "Hey," That's really just not okay. Uh, and then also, you know, talking about what you can do, what the resources are. Perhaps they didn't feel comfortable for many reasons going forward to law enforcement. There's a host of reasons someone might feel uncomfortable. But just making sure that people in the community know that there are resources where they can reach out and get options. Mm-hmm. Now,
0: speaking of resources, um, you've kind of brought up that you have a volunteer base. And also, I know that you can make a donation. Um, Would you like to let our listeners know about your volunteer program, what they can do to help, and also if they can't physically do it and want to go into their pocketbook, how they can make a donation?
4: I will tell you that this Saturday, we have a volunteer training, and I will tell you, we love our student volunteers, but we sure could use some more community volunteers, especially in the summer and in the holidays when students are gone. Mm-hmm. So our volunteer training is this Saturday at the Bloomington Transit. They have a multi-purpose room in there. It starts at 9. You can visit our website um, middlewayhouse.org and print up our volunteer application or we'll have applications there for individuals but we would really love some people to come and volunteer and if people are interested in making a donation they can donate through paypal on our website or they can also (coughs) send us a donation um our address is p.o box 95 um bloomington indiana
0: Now, are there any other resources besides money that people could donate that would be helpful?
3: Absolutely. We always have a wish list on our website, which we keep up to date. And people can see a list of materials that might be helpful for our child care program or specific items that are needed for maintaining the building or for survivors as well.
0: Okay, now I'm going to put in a little selfish plug. I'm with the Commission on the Status of Black Males, and we have a READ 200 program for the Bicentennial and we're going to different places reading books to children. So is there a time that might be good if there were some volunteers that wanted to come in to read some good stories to the the kids?
4: You contact us. I will put you in contact with our youth program coordinator and our child care coordinator, and I am sure we'll find a time for you guys to come and read.
2: All right. We are on the on. We're on Bring It On tonight <laughs> on WFHB.org uh, with our friends from the Middleway House, the director, Dub Merrow, and Sarah. Sarah's your last name? Hunt. Hunt, thank you. Uh, thank you both for being here, Sarah and Deborah.
0: And we were talking earlier about uh, the legal aspect, and we kind of talked off air about how some people just aren't ready for a litany number of reasons. Hopefully, at some point in their lives, they're going to come around. And if at that point they decide that they want to seek justice, I know there's statutes of limitations. Some states are changing. But so how does that whole process work for the person that years later? Because a lot, of th- a lot of complaints from men that I hear with the Me Too movement, which I don't buy, that happened 30 years ago. Why'd they wait so long? So um. you, could you address that?
4: The healing process takes much longer than 30 years. Often, I mean, depending on... For some individuals, it can last their entire lifetime. Um, I think it's kind of different when we're talking sexual assault and domestic violence or childhood sexual abuse in regards to the statute of limitations. I think some states have changed the statute of limitations for um, sexual abuse for minors. I'm not sure. Can you speak more on...
3: I don't have the specifics.
4: I don't either. I think, though, for some folks, never reaching out for legal recourse is okay. For some, that feels safer to them. I think even individuals who are experiencing domestic violence, for some... They may be very hesitant to reach out to the police for various reasons, but what Middleway House wants to do is to make sure that they know they can come and get help from us, whether or not
3: they've gotten any help from the criminal justice system. We provide options, not advice. And we believe that the survivor is in the best decision, you know, the best place to make a decision for themselves about how to move forward. I think that when we're dealing with survivors of domestic violence, it's important to know that leaving is often the most dangerous time. So we know survivors are most likely to be killed in the first two years of exiting A violent relationship and so by staying it's easy for us to look in and say why don't you just leave but they may be making the very best decision for themselves so them calling we give them options we can let them know about our support groups you don't have to even plan to be exiting to attend a support group and then in terms of sexual violence I think that if someone discloses to you it's important to start by believing to listen to them, to let them know that this is not their fault, to let them know that there are resources out there that can provide options. If someone does choose to go to the emergency room and have a rape kit performed, there are sexual assault nurse examiners who are trained. One of our unseen advocates can accompany someone to the hospital. But also many people, even if they choose to go that route, never go through the criminal justice process. And I once was, I previously worked at the Protective Order Assistance Partnership, and I once had an intern that someone had dropped a case, a sexual violence case, and they said, I just don't understand why they would do that. But having to go over probably one of the worst nights of your life over and over again, and be at the mercy of 12 strangers of believing you, is incredibly different. I I said to that intern, you've known me for a while. You feel really comfortable with me. How would you feel sharing your best sexual experience with me? And they just paused. And I said, I don't want you to tell me. Right. (laughs) I I just now imagine sharing that in a a room with a judge and prosecutors and attorneys and 12 strangers and sharing that and hoping that they believe you. So it's difficult.
2: I'm so glad that you said that, because I think that that is such that validating that person's experience. I'm thinking about when you go to the emergency room and you've got to convince 15 people that your stomach does not feel right, you know, Mm -hmm. and you've kind of got to go through this litmus test with other people so that they can get some sense that your complaint is legit and valid and you can move through the pipeline of services. And that's with you know a burst appendix or something you know not at all emotionally charged not at all about damaging your very personhood and your soul mm-hmm. and and yet we we expect victims to just sort of like pipe up and tell the first 20 people they see what happened to them
3: like, while they're like, in trauma
2: while they're in trauma like there's no consequence um at all to that it, it That's- blows my
4: mind that's where i see so much value in our on-scene advocates who can accompany somebody to keep that safe space for them right when they're if they do decide to go to the hospital and i will say that somebody can go to the hospital if they've experienced a sexual assault and have a rape kit done free of charge if that is a barrier to anybody Mm -hmm. and that does not mean that they have to turn it into the police
3: no, they'll hold on to that for, I believe, seven years, and so you have that period of time to decide whether you do want to move forward with a criminal case. in doing
0: a little research, I found something that I was shocked i didn't I didn't realize I shouldn't say shocked, and so I'm sure I'm not the only one. But I did not realize that Middleway House was also a resource for men who have are victims, and uh, if I didn't know that, I'm sure that several several of our listeners may not. So could you talk a little bit about the services of men men who come in and, and just the fact that there are some services for men in this regard?
4: Men can receive any of the services that we provide to women. We serve individuals wherever they are on the gender spectrum. That is very important. You know, we know that It is not just women that experience domestic abuse or sexual assault. And as an agency, we have an obligation to help anybody who's experienced either of those two abuses. Um, We understand that in the past, we have kind of been totally associated as being an organization that serves females. And we've worked hard, we've changed our logo a little over a year ago that took the individual out that looked like a woman because they were wearing a dress to help kind of take away that perception because the sad thing is i mean there are so many barriers to a male reporting domestic abuse and sexual assault and we need to be a safe space for them and we need to ensure that they feel comfortable
0: coming to us now you've got women children who have sex who have experience battery of some sort. Now you have a a man also there, and a lot of cases for the women, you know, they're looking at men during this traumatic time as, I don't want to be around, don't want to deal with. So how does that interaction work?
4: Well, at the same time, we could have a woman in there who is in an intimate partner relationship with another woman who experienced abuse by a woman, and she might be feeling afraid because there's other women there. So... I think when our advocates do a great job when people come into our shelter, letting them know that what's important is that everybody here is safe and that we feel safe and you know that we are accepting of everybody that's there. And people accept that when they come in. I mean, everybody there is in the same boat and it's hard. And being in a shelter environment is challenging and hard for anybody. But it's a shared challenge that they're all facing
2: together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I just want to throw this out there. And I realize I'm throwing out kind of <laughs> – um, not an opinion, but just an observation. And I realize you're in the business of practitioners, not necessarily researchers. So I just mm-hmm. want to put a little asterisk there. But I was recently visiting the RAIN website, mm-hmm. the rain.org, and looking at some of their national crime victimization survey um, statistics and conversation. And they said that, that victims of sexual assault or assault victims were three to four times more likely to engage in use of marijuana, six times more likely to engage in cocaine use, 10 times more likely to engage in some kind of um, risky recreational drug. So we are having this national conversation A hysterical pitch about um, the opioid crisis, and yet we've got people on the margins saying, "Can't these Me Too people kind of just be done with this conversation yet?" And mm-hmm. we haven't even scratched the surface of why you would have what would what would be a contributing factor. What kind of mental health issues lead to the contributing factors of it? something like an opioid crisis? You
4: are talking so much. What means so much to me? I do a support group in the jail for women that have experienced domestic abuse and um, sexual assault. And they have addiction issues. And why that, once again, is another reason why they won't call the police. If they're being abused, but they're a drug user... They're gonna take that abuse versus going calling the police and risking going to jail. And the same thing with sexual abuse. and so it makes them so much more vulnerable. And the ones that I have seen in and out in and out of jail, I've been going in the jail for about twelve years, maybe that ran there. and the ones that I have seen that have the worst addiction issues and the longest patterns of being in and out of jail that their sexual abuse and domestic abuse are just piled on top of each other starting oftentimes with childhood sexual abuse and it is heartbreaking and we have to address this we have to look at not what's wrong with people what's happened to them what's brought them to this point
3: Oftentimes, to elaborate on that, people that have experienced this type of violence experience trauma, which we know manifests in a lot of mental health conditions, anxiety, depression, things of that nature. And so oftentimes individuals are self-medicating and then this may be a way to self-medicate to avoid seeking help because if a survivor goes and gets mental health treatment, oftentimes the abuser or perpetrator will say that they're going to use that against them to gain custody of the children or hold it against them when they're seeking separation. So it just becomes another layer.
4: And the addiction is then used as part of the abuse. I mean, keeping them addicted to substances.
0: We've got about eight minutes left in the show, and I'm going to put you two ladies on the spot. Is there anything that each of you would like to tell our listening audience that we haven't covered that's dear to your heart that you would like them to know um, about Middleway House in general and just about this particular topic?
4: One message that I always like to get out is that so many times survivors feel alone and they feel like they don't deserve help because they feel like it's their fault. And if there is one message I could get to anybody who's survived through any type of abuse is to know that it was not their fault. It in no way, shape, or form has ever been their fault and that we're there to help them. And they deserve help they do not deserve any type of abuse. So if there's one thing I could, if there's anybody listening who, whether it's, whenever it is, you're ready for help, know that we're here for you.
3: I echo that. We we serve all survivors. So as we talked about, men might feel uncomfortable coming forward or people that identify along the LGBTQ plus spectrum might feel uncomfortable coming forward. I think that's one thing I want people to know is we serve all survivors. We believe you. It's not your fault. You're not alone. We're not going to tell you what's best for you. We're going to provide you with options, and then we're going to support whatever decisions you make throughout the entire process. And I am just so fortunate to work for such a wonderful agency that is here to serve so many individuals. And, but I do think that's the biggest thing is we're here. We believe you. It's not your fault. You're not alone.
4: I will have to say whatever, if somebody ever reaches out to Middleway House, whatever staff member that they reach out to, I'm telling you they have one of the most amazing, dedicated people to work with because our staff is amazing and so dedicated mm-hmm. to helping survivors. And that commitment is so deep. And I think that's what makes Middle Way House special. It's the people working at the organization. They're all amazing.
3: We're in it for the outcome, not the outcome. <laughs> oh, I like that. My teachers. <laughs>
0: you know, you mentioned options a couple of times, that you don't give advice, you give options. What type of options?
3: Well, it really depends on where the survivor is and what they want. So are they... Considering making, you know, maybe perhaps they've been a victim of sexual violence and they just want to talk to someone. And we can say, this is, you know, you could contact the police and this is what that might look like. You could do this. If you do choose to go to the hospital, we can come with you. You could have a rape kit performed. And then no matter what, or you could just come to our sexual violence support group. Or you could do none of those things. It's absolutely your choice. Or if you're considering leaving an abusive partner, we could safety plan with someone and think through various strategies, no matter what that looks like, whether they're choosing to stay in the situation for now, because that might be the best thing, (laughs) and thinking through in the meantime what they can do to remain safe. And for them, that might be coming to shelter. For them, it may not be. But just respecting that and then thinking through various strategies based on their unique circumstances. And everyone has their own set of unique circumstances. So it's really hard to speak specifically to that because we're going to meet the survivor where they are and provide resources based on that and what they express that they want to do.
4: The minute that we would tell somebody what to do, we're no different than the abuser Mm -hmm. and that we... Strive very much to give people their own power back and that's through making their own decisions. And, you know, I always, when we do our volunteer training, I always say, you know, if somebody called us and we told them, oh my gosh, you have to leave this relationship. We don't think it's safe for you and you should leave. That person is going to say, okay, they'll tell us okay and they'll go and they'll stay if that's what they want to do. But then when they decide to leave, they're not going to reach out to us again. Or if they decide they want some help, it's not going to be us because they're going to be afraid. We're going to look at them and we're going to say, why didn't you do what we told you before? So we in no way want to leave that taste in their mouth. We want them to feel 100% supported by us no matter what their decision is.
2: And if you're looking for that number and you want to have it handy because you're listening today, that 24-hour crisis line is area code 812-336-0846. Again, that's
3: 812-336-0846.
4: And people can call that number anonymously. We're not even going to ask your name.
3: And it 24-7-7. 365 days a year, and it's a help in crisis line. So sometimes people will think, well, my situation is in a crisis. Crisis looks different for different people. So it is a help in crisis line. You don't have to be in whatever you might perceive as a crisis to call. We're here.
0: You mentioned the volunteers earlier and that you have training coming up. If a person decides they want to be a volunteer for Middleway House, is there a time commitment? Uh, What type of barriers or things do they have to go through?
4: through. Um you would first attend the 8 hour training and then we do have you fill out an application we do do background checks on individuals Um, And depending on what program you're interested in volunteering in, there's secondary training. So, for example, if somebody wanted to volunteer with the youth program, there would probably be another two-hour training directly related to working specifically with that program. But if you were wanting to be on the crisis line or be an on-scene advocate volunteer, you would go through a much more extensive training of up to 12, 16 hours, possibly. But you would be very well trained and very well equipped to handle those types of situations.
3: And if someone's not feeling as though they might be able to work directly with Survivors. There's a host of other opportunities to volunteer as well, such as with our legal advocacy department tracking cases and things like that, or helping out in the admin office, or assisting in website development, or helping with uh, building repairs or maintenance. There's many aspects available where you can make a difference
4: volunteers work throughout our entire agency some we've had volunteers who want to just come and help clean the building so you know whatever it is whatever somebody's talent. call is <laughs> or a talent yeah. we can definitely find a place for them
0: excellent I want to thank Middleway House Director Deborah Morrow and Community Outreach Services Coordinator Sarah Hunt for joining us to discuss the services they provide, along with the special programming that previously occurred in April, which is de- which is designated Sexual Assault Awareness Month.
2: Bring It On has an open submission policy. So if you have an idea for this program, let's hear it. Send an email to our volunteer staff. The address is bringiton at WFHB.org. We want to make sure that we share everything and anything impacting the African-American community in Monroe County and beyond with our listening audience. The email address, once again, is bringiton at on wfhb.org.
0: That morning, there's nothing can harm you.
4: Yeah, sweet daddy and mommy,
0: stay.
2: For our kickoff salute to summer, you just heard Summertime, sung by two immortal icons, Louis Armstrong and the only Ella Fitzgerald. Each week through this summer, we'll be playing songs with a blazing hot summertime theme.
0: To keep up with local news and find out what's happening behind the scenes at WFHB, you're invited to like the WFHB Facebook page. Go to Facebook.com and search for WFHB. Or you can always visit the WFHB website at wfhb.org slash news.
2: Bring It On is Indiana's only public affairs program dedicated to the African-American community here on WFHB 91.3 FM and live on the web at WFHB.org. For Bring It On, I'm Roberta Radovich.
0: And I'm Clarence Boone. Ha 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 ha. I read the script. I'm Cornelius Wright. At the top of the hour, we mentioned that there is a new bicentennial exhibit, which opened on June 1st. The theme is Breaking the Color Barrier. Bloomington's first. I would have lost the bet.
2: (laughs) And we've invited Miss Liz Mitchell um, to come on and talk about this incredible breaking the color barrier, Bloomington's firsts. You get a sneak preview tonight hearing from Miss Mitchell about what constitutes the exhibit, some of the stories behind the exhibit and then I also think she might even have a special opportunity to share with our listening audience to get involved and uh, come see it
0: Good evening Liz Hey hello good
1: evening
0: How you doing good this Good
1: evening, evening. I- I'm doing great just very, very busy and enjoying every minute of it.
2: Excellent. You, you are. You're like you're furbishing uh, historical buildings, curating these incredible exhibits, uh, traveling. You, you're a busy lady
0: and producing plays.
2: Producing plays. Yeah, How so could I can't forget, forget about that? that? Yeah, how could you forgive me?
0: (laughs) (laughs) So, Liz, tell us about Breaking the Color Barrier, the Bloomingtons, first. How did this project come together, uh, and what should we be looking forward to?
1: Okay, the project came together because I took my grandkids down to the History Center last summer and saw that we weren't being represented, even in the sports section. So I was a little upset about that, came downstairs, and I said, hey, that wasn't a good experience for me or my grandchildren. We didn't see ourselves being representative there. So from that, um, I was asked to be on the board. And I said I didn't have time, but somebody's got to do it. And (laughs) I gave them a list of things that I thought that the community would be interested in and that would make our community proud, the African-American community. So out of that list, the young man that they hired as an exhibit design, he picked Bloomington's first. And that depicts the, the first people that uh, are in their field, like the first African-American police officer, the first African-American uh, fireman, teacher, uh, whatever in their particular fields. So, for nine months, um, AJ, that's the young man, we have uh, been trying to get the community involved and loan or donate items that uh, will detect <laughs> first in whatever field. And I've gone door to door trying to get it. We realize we do have quite a few that participated but then there were some that chose not to uh, participate. The exhibit is beautiful. AJ did a beautiful job uh, displaying the items that we have. You will be uh, surprised and excited about who all is included in this. And it is about Monroe County. So that's (laughs) IU as well as uh, the the people not associated with IU. We've included both. I, I just think it's just it's time. This is the first of many exhibits we have planned and events that will showcase the African-American community here in Bloomington, Indiana.
2: Ms. Mitchell, who's one of your favorites? Who's one of your favorite historical figures um, on exhibit in this particular curated display?
1: Oh... I'd have to say George Taliaferro. Why is that? I, but well, because I've known him, he has an infectious grin. He's just a lovely man and what he's gone through uh for all of us, you know, I consider the first as as paving the way for others and he most certainly did. Now, you know, in this exhibit there are quite a few other people that have paved the way to make life easier. Because, you know, when you're the first, it's no telling what you're putting up with. And so then the next one come through doesn't have as difficult as, as a time as the first. So I, for me personally, it's Talafero.
0: You, you know, you mentioned something That's- earlier about how you've asked people to uh, participate, and that got me to thinking that, you know, it's really sad that with a, a, a list of Bloomington's first of black people breaking the color line that a lot of those people are still alive it wasn't that long ago
1: Absolutely
2: I was just I was just going to s- say something like that so I'll follow up with Cornelius and say why is why is the time now to think about these firsts they haven't even gone on home to glory but why is it important now to capture these firsts
1: Well for me it's always been about educating the community and you need to let people know, you know, in a lot of things when it comes to the bicentennial, how many things are we included when we're talking about Bloomington's or Monroe County's bicentennial? Right. So this is one opportunity that we have. Um, not too long ago, there was an article about the land grants. And then they admitted the first African Americans that were involved in the land grants. So I called and said, how could you omit these men? There were two of them, African-Americans, and you talk about the land grants here that got Bloomington started, and you don't mention them. So now is the time, tomorrow is the time, next week, next year, every day, every hour is the time to discuss what African-Americans have not only done for Monroe County but for this country
2: that's right otherwise we risk being omitted from history
1: oh yeah we've always been omitted
0: Mm -hmm. indeed
1: and so if you're not in the history books what do our children have to be proud of a lot but Cornelius and Roberta they don't know right so if nothing else uh, this is the opportunity for children to come in there and go oh he was the first to do this. Uh, he was the, she did that. Well, I can do it, too.
0: We've got a couple minutes left, and uh, do you huh? want to give a shout-out to any of the staff members that helped put this together and also let our listening audience know about the uh, opening reception on Friday?
1: Okay, the, the opening reception is Friday, 5.30. You get to tour it. Uh, we want as many people to come out. I want to give a shout-out to A.J., the design person for the historic center, and also to my friend, I think you know her, Cornelius, Jolene Wright. If it wasn't for Jolene, <laughs> she and I going door-to-door, banging on doors, asking people to help out. So we know a lot of people are going to come in and say, hey, so-and-so should be here, so-and-so. Okay, help us get those, ask them. We've already asked them once. You go ask them to participate. We are excited about this exhibit. It's wonderful. June 8th, come out. Now, the exhibit is going to be there until October 12th. But we want you to, to show up and show out on June 8th at 530. All right. right. Well, in Washington.
2: So I'm I'm seeing a little birdie told me that we can get a bit of a sneak peek if we check out some posts on Facebook. Is there um should we go to the Monroe History
1: Monroe County History Facebook page? Yes.
2: All right. All right. So we will do that. We will make sure that we get that posted up on our uh, hashtag Bring It On WFHB uh, website as a sort of follow-up or recap for our listening audience. And for more information about Breaking the bar- Color Barrier, Bloomington's firsts, you can contact Susan Dyer, the director of the Monroe County History Center at www.monroehistory.org.
0: Liz, we really want to thank you for taking the time to join us this evening and uh, talk about the uh, exhibit.
1: Yeah, and I can't wait to see you guys. I can't wait to see your eyes when you see it. Yes, we'll
0: be there. Yes. Okay.
2: (laughs) Thank you. Excellent, excellent. Thank you to Miss Liz Mitchell for coming out to talk about the bicentennial exhibit, "Breaking the Color Barrier: Bloomington's Firsts," which is on display at the Monroe County History Center until October twelfth.
0: Our listeners are also invited to invited to the opening reception on this Friday, June eighth, from six five thirty, as Liz said, to eight p.m. with tours of the exhibit. If you can't make it on the eighth. No worries. The exhibit runs, as Roberta said, until October the 12th.
2: If you have an event or happening the African-American community should know about, please send the info directly to the Bring It On staff. Or if you want additional information about a calendar item that you've heard about tonight, contact us at bringiton at
0: Our thanks to Middleway House Director Deborah Morrow and Community Out- Outreach Coordinator Sarah Hunt for joining us to discuss the services they provide, along with the special programming that previously occurred in April, which is designated as Sexual Assault Awareness Month. Our show's producer is Clarence Boone with help from WFHB News Department Director Wes Martin. Our board engineer is the fabulous Chris Martin. Our original theme music was created by Jamil Effium with additional background tracks by David Baker. For WFHB, I'm Cornelius Wright.
2: And I'm Roberta Radovich. Tune in next Monday, June 11th at 6 p.m. for another exciting edition of Bring It On right here on your community radio station, WFHB.